Tonight we're in Luke chapter 18, looking at verses 9 through 14. The parable of the Pharisee and the publican, or the tax collector. Again, if you'll listen now to the Lord's word, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the Lord's word. Would you bow with me? Again, O Lord, we thank you for this night. And again, thank you for the account of Hannah that we read and for how you hear, Father, the prayers of your people, how you care so deeply for your people, and how, Father, you would caution us to be a people who look to your hand for blessing and not think it is us who brings blessing to you. We thank you, Father, for this account that we're opening up tonight and pray that you would bless your servant and I pray that you would bless these your people those who sit here tonight and those who may hear uh, over the computer we ask father that your word would go forward with power we pray again as we prayed this morning that your blessing be upon your word going forward and that you would minister now to your people and that father that Christ Jesus the Lord would be lifted up and that we would turn from any um, any hope, any aspiration of recommending ourselves to you, but that we would look to you to bring your blessing to us. We ask all of this now, praying again that your blessing be upon your word as it goes forward, and praying too for the outpouring of your spirit upon us, that you would open eyes and open hearts. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. It was Christmas vacation. It was a Friday night, and my brothers and I were wound up, really wound up. I think my father had probably built a fire in the fireplace, and we'd had popcorn, and no school the next day, the beginning of Christmas uh, vacation. Wonderful time. I was in fifth grade, so I was still, what, 11, 12, 11, I guess I would be, and my youngest brother, Aaron, would have been in third grade. My mother, as was her ritual with us, told us to get our pajamas on and told us to go get into our beds and she would be down to say goodnight. And in case you're wondering, my basement or my bedroom was always in the basement of the house. That's where you put the overflow children. (laughs) You stick them in the basement. And so my brothers and I shared a a downstairs basement and it was just a, a wonderful, wonderful experience. But as you can imagine, we're 11 on down to kindergarten. We're kind of still pretty much uh, probably not quite as safe as a box of puppies. Um, she says, go get your pajamas on. And we went down, and before we ever made it to our pajamas, we got involved in a game, a game that we had created. 
The game was a game of pretend, and I don't know who thinks of these things. There's no books where these games are recorded. If there were, they wouldn't sell. Um, it was a pretend game we came up with. There was this boy in our school who was always getting into trouble. His name was Jimmy, and so we had this, this acting out scenario type of thing where Jimmy is being rambunctious. Jimmy is being disrespectful. He's being a loud mouth. He's being uh, belligerent. And I, my brother Jason played Jimmy. And so the, the gist of the game was Jimmy is supposed to be brought under control by the teacher and the police, then the army, then the president. <laughs> I told you I was 11. <laughs> um, so Jimmy smarts off, and the teacher says, now, Jimmy, you've got to stop this, or else I'm going to have to call the police. And Jimmy says, yeah, 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 whatever. And he throws a pillow or something like this. And so the teacher gets the police involved, and the police can't control Jimmy. And so the police get the army involved, and of course the army can't control Jimmy. <laughs> that can make a great book. <laughs> Finally, because the army can't do it, we call in President Jimmy Carter. Now Jimmy, where he says, I want you to behave. And the president was as far as the game went because as Jimmy smarted off, the president pushed Jimmy against a wall and snapped Jimmy's front tooth in half on the heavy-duty paneling in our basement. Um, it is one of the few times in my life when everything uh, stood still. The world stopped spinning, including my heart. Um, I will never forget my brother Jason turning around with this look of terror in his eyes, his hand going up to his mouth and him crying out, my tooth, my tooth. I mean, it was snapped clean in half, and there was a dent. We found it years later. We could see the dent still in the wall. I couldn't hide this. I am certainly about to die. My precious life is about to end at 11 years old. I couldn't deny that I had done this. We were messing around, not doing what we were supposed to be doing. And I thought to myself, I'd better get upstairs faster than my brother Jason gets upstairs. So I ran up the stairs, uh, the stairs leading to our family room. And I noticed that as I, I remember going up the stairs and the closer I got to the family room where my parents were, I started to get lower and lower to the ground until I reached the top of the stairs and I was literally crawling almost on my belly. And I enter the room, just crying, sobbing, saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. My parents stood up. My dad and my mom rose from their chairs, and as they did, again, my limbs were weak. I was on my face. My tear-stained face was buried in that nasty, long, 70s shag carpet. They were startled. They were startled, but amazingly, neither one of them, as I recall, ever raised their voice to me. No one ever shamed me. My brother was hurt, but he was not badly hurt. In fact, he wore it kind of like a badge of honor. I don't think he stopped smiling for the next three days. And they told me that they would take care of things. And I remember thinking, this is going to cost a million dollars, or it might as well have, because when you're 11 years old and you buy hamburgers and soda pop with your allowance, you have nothing, right, to fix anything. And they were just lovely towards me. I was never punished for the incident. I was, I was never scolded. 
and it was never brought up again in my presence. Never. They, they acted like this is, this is common fare for little boys to snap off each other's teeth. <laughs> I never knew why they never brought it up again. And I, I can only imagine um, that they did it because of the manner in which I had come up. I think it might have been different if I had come up saying, um, you know, it wouldn't have happened if Jason's teeth weren't so big or if the wall wasn't so hard or you ought to be grateful that I only broke one. <laughs> you should be grateful that you have a son that tells the truth, but I didn't come up this way. I came up on my belly, on my face, with tears, and readily confessed my, my error. Kind of a silly story. True story, though, every bit of it. They forgave me. They forgave me. And this, friends, is how the Lord deals with those who are broken over their sin. When they come humbly before him, he receives them and receives them in his kindness. Here in verses 9 through 14, Jesus tells a parable, a story. Uh, a parable, again, is a, is a commonplace event. Uh, regular people, everyday situations or events, and they're there to teach a very important spiritual lesson. Here Luke records, and he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. It's sad, but it's true. There was an audience uh, what we say uh, a, a niche market for this kind of story. There apparently were a lot of people who were quite self-righteous in Israel in the days that Jesus walked the streets of Palestine. Many believe that God is going to or has to honor them because they do right. Many believe that because they do right, God has to honor them. They're persuaded, they're confident in their own righteousness. Who, when asked, why would God let you into heaven? They respond with a sentence dotted with eyes. Well, because I'm genuine, I'm sincere, I'm real with others. I was baptized, I really try to do what is right. I'm not bad or as bad or like other people. I know. remember going to the county fairs and always talking to people about the Lord and it Without a doubt, these are, the, these are the, the greatest answers people give every time. Why would the Lord let you into heaven? Well, I try to keep the golden rule. I mean, that one, probably more than any other answer. I try to do good to others. Well, I'm not as bad as some others. Well, I belong to a church. I've been baptized. You can see there's a, there's a great similarity between this parable and, and what we examined this morning. Um. So they, we essentially, these, this group, these people, come to the Lord thinking that God is, is reasonable like we are. God will let sincere, hardworking people like ourselves into heaven. We deserve it. It's like a paycheck. I work hard for him. Now God owes me. And that's these people. They have a corresponding action, uh, however, and it's less than honorable. The people who Jesus addressed this parable to are truly less than righteous, for they viewed others with contempt. You see, they view themselves as, as a source of goodness and are down on all others who aren't like them. We know from the outset that these righteous folk are not really righteous because they view others as being less than themselves. They view them with disdain. They view them as nothing. 
they view themselves as higher than the rest. John would say in 1 John 2.11, the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. They are high on themselves and very down on others. That's, that's something that you uh, always examine in yourself when we start looking down upon other people and thinking they're not quite up to snuff, kind of like not, the, not church quality type of people. Be careful. Be careful of that, that mindset. Here again, he addresses this parable to these because they need to realize that this chariot in which they are trusting is missing its wheels. This horse that they are hoping to ride into heaven is lame and the sword has no edge. Their righteousness is a bad thing in which to be placing their hope of victory. This is who to whom Jesus is addressing this parable. Again, he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Again, listen to this parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You need to notice the contrast between the confident and the contrite. You need to see here the contrast that Jesus paints for us in this parable of the confident and the contrite. Here, this Pharisee and this tax collector had a common task to attend to that day. They had both gone to the temple that day to pray. Why the temple? Why go to the temple? It's the place where God was. It's where the Israelites were supposed to go to offer sacrifices. This is where they would go to offer up their prayers. God was there in a very special way. And so they would go, they'd offer their sacrifices, and they would would offer up their prayers. This temple is a place of types and shadows. So as you read the Old Testament, um, all these things that have occurred in the Old Testament are all preparing the Lord's people, preparing the world, really, to meet the Savior, to meet the Messiah. But as you read through the Old Testament and you read the law, Moses, the, the law and the record of, of how the temple was to be constructed and how the sacrifices were to be performed, it was no light matter to come into the presence of the Lord. No one could just willy-nilly just walk in there and offer up prayers. No one goes in without a sacrifice. And of course, you don't do it yourself. You have someone interceding for you, a priest who's, who's making the sacrifice. And then the, you'd have the high priest who would go in through the veil. And remember this, that he would, they would put on, on the hem of his robe a pomegranate in a bell, alternating. And then they would tie a rope around his ankle just in case he died inside um, before God, they could drag his carcass out of there without endangering their own lives. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is no light matter. So they're going to the temple, right? So this should be a very weighty thing that they're going to do. Both these men, this this Pharisee and his tax collector, are going there. And, and here we see that these types and shadows... Um, 
that, that are, are laid out for us in the Old Testament, we see who was saved. Um, we see that, that God dealt with them in the Old Testament as, they do, as he does in the New Testament. Again, all these things being types and shadows showing us that it was another who would have to come and atone for our sin. Thus, God would make provision for the sin. Again, the temple is a place of devotion. God's holiness uh, is, is there, and this weight should be upon them. They had both come to meet with the Lord to pray. And we will see that one of the men, the Pharisee, has come to showcase himself and to bless himself, while the tax collector has come to meet with God and to be blessed by God. What made the difference is how they approached the Lord, and that's what the Lord focuses upon in this parable. Look at how each man approaches the Lord. They have different prayers. Again, listen to the, the Pharisee's prayer. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this, and you can almost imagine him tipping his head, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. He has a problematic pietism here, a legalism. And remember, we, we looked at this in Sunday school, I don't know, a year and a half ago or so, that Sinclair Ferguson study, where he gave a, a wonderful definition of legalism. And it's performing the law without an attachment, a personal attachment, or without adoration. So it's the difference between a woman who's duty-bound to have to wait on her husband, and she's kind of begrudging, but she does it. I'm a good wife. I cook these things. And, and, then, and, and the woman who says, I love this man so much, I'm going to wash his socks. I'm going to wash his clothes. I, I want to make him meals. And the difference, the, the, the difference here, the heart, um, in legalism, the heart is not present, but the obedience is. The heart is not doing it out of adoration for the Lord, but they're going through the motions. Here's a man who has this problematic approach to the Lord. It is not wrong to thank the Lord. In fact, it is good for us to thank the Lord for his, uh, for his preservation of us. It is good to thank the Lord, attributing to him, to his grace, our small victories over sin. So I'm not saying it's not good to thank the Lord, but this man is tripping all over his self-righteousness. It's the difference, I would argue, between piety, which is a good thing, and legalism, a bad thing. It, it's the, what's motivating this man to come to the temple and to stand up and to pray as he does. Um, I'll give you an example of the difference between what is piety and, and legalism. Piety says, I want to read the, the word in order to get to know the Lord. I, I desire to know the Lord. Legalism, on the other hand, uh, reads the word because I want to be able to feel good about myself. I've shared this with you. I've shared a lot of this uh, with you over the years, but I, I shared not too long ago, again, how my wife and I was in a young pastor. I'm in the, the, the buckle of the Bible belt down in Jackson, Mississippi, you know, where, where everyone, even the youth group, they wore wingtip shoes and wool pants. Um, it's, it's so hardcore Presbyterian. And it's really important that you behave like a Presbyterian minister. So my wife, my dear wife, getting up with me at 5 in the morning, 5 in the morning, 
that's an ungodly time to be getting up. And uh, we get up, we put on coffee, and we'd sit down, and we're going to read our Bibles, and we're going to do this. And I think we did it for about three weeks. <laughs> then Alyssa was born, which was a blessing for us because it got us out of this 5, 5 a.m. Uh, show that we were involved in. But I loved being able to go to church, and I'm tired. Oh, why are you tired? Well, you know, got up at 5 in the morning. I was being spiritual today. How about you? When did you get up and do your quiet times? You know, and you give the people the stare down. And, and it really becomes a bragging point. It wasn't because I love the Lord and this is the only time I can get up and squeeze time in. And so I'm getting, it's, I'm, well, look at me. I am a soldier of the cross. If anyone was worthy to be a Presbyterian minister, I am, right? This is the difference between piety and legalism. Again, piety delights in the Lord and desires to serve and love the Lord out of gratitude for what the Lord has done. Legalism, on the other hand, just says, I got to do these things so that I can feel good about myself. The problem here is, is his motive is not out of devotion to the Lord, but is driven by a selfish ends. The Pharisees were the religious conservatives of the day. They held to the laws of Moses and the myriads of other laws that men had added to God's law. These were the well-respected of the day. And the Pharisees stood to pray, which is not an unusual thing, probably, I'm guessing, with his eyes and hands lifted up, standing in the temple, probably as close to the Holy of Holies as he could get, I would imagine. It strikes me that, that this, this picture, again, going into the temple, and this man prays so confidently. Notice he dots his prayer with, I do this and I do that. He's very proud of himself. He's, he's quite accomplished. He's not like the regular people. He stands and he prays. His confidence must be indeed very great because in the temple, this man's words convey nothing of shortcomings. There is no mention of, I, I really sinned this week. Lord, forgive me. There's nothing of his sin, and it makes you wonder if he even understands what the temple is all about. How can we approach the Lord? Right? Have you ever stopped to think about the blood, the sheer amount of blood that was spilt in the temple. I mean, they build this beautiful temple furniture, and then every other verse is like, and I want you to splash blood on this and sprinkle blood on this and sprinkle blood on this. It must have been constantly covered with blood and the smell of, of burning flesh and, and organs. It must have been a, a horrible thing in a sense, because it's, it's without blood, without the shedding of blood, there was no remission of sins. Without, without this sacrifice, you could not approach God. I would think it would be a terrifying thing to, to step into the presence of the Lord, and yet this man so confidently stands up and, God, I thank thee. And he, he delivers this prayer, praising himself, really praising himself and, and praising his accomplishments. 
Um, again, his prayers to himself, about himself. And is God even listening? That's questionable, isn't it? Because God is opposed to the proud, says James. He uses the obligatory God, but he proceeds with his own virtues. What he is not and what he does, he is thankful that he is not like others, and he names some big-name sinners, swindlers, the unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He's a good man, a respectable man, the kind that God even should respect. He fasts twice a week, which is nowhere commanded in the scriptures that you do it twice a week. I believe it was just once on the Day of Atonement, and he tithes beyond the requirements of the law. Several points of application on this is, first of all, just because you can compare yourself to others, and just because you can find people you are better than morally, or in this case fiscally, doesn't mean that God views you as righteous. We have to always be careful about this very thing. You are not called to compare yourself to others, nor are you to say to yourself, I'm not as good as this person because I don't do this, nor are you supposed to say, I'm not better than this person because they do that. You are not called to compare yourself to anyone else, but to the Lord we must compare ourselves. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5? You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Again, not good, but he says perfect. You are to be morally perfect. Secondly, we should not think that doing extra credit is pleasing to the Lord. We do this. I'm, I'm fasting. I'm, I fast twice a week. I, I tithe of all these things. Good works are what God calls good, not men. Again, you know how what a blessing it would be if we all just stopped comparing ourselves to everyone else around us and we started just reading our Bibles and saying, what does the Lord require of me? It would, it would be the leveler, the perfect leveler, because none of us could walk away thinking we were deserving or owed anything, and none of us could go away thinking we were better than somebody else, and we would all see our own sinfulness. So we should not think that doing extra credit is pleasing to the Lord. And third, if you are looking to please God by obeying the law, uh, that is to earn salvation, to secure a place in heaven, you must keep the whole law all the time. The whole law, all the time. Well, what's the problem with that? <laughs> Nobody does it, right? I mean, we start off in this world. Remember, we talked about this this morning as well. How do we come into this world? We come in as little reprobates. I, I mean, we do. It's, I, it's good we're so cute when we're born because our parents would want to toss us away. That's, we're, we're sinful, and that's, that's the doctrine of Scripture, original sin. And, and from this original sin flow all the actual sins. So you start off in this world with a negative balance. How do you dig yourself out of this hole, and how do you rise to the level of perfection? You can never do it. And yet this man, this man is standing in the temple, offering up prayers to God, um, extolling himself and his virtues. James says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. As Paul said, there is none who are righteous. And he would say, 
in Romans 3, 19 through 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. Because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's what the law does. The law is good, and it's holy, and it's righteous. But all it can do is get us lost. It can only expose our sinfulness. It can only show us how needy we are. And this man, this Pharisee, fails to see this very thing. He was high on himself. He's proud of his achievements, very comfortable before God, and very wrong about himself. Now Jesus tells these self-righteous people about a man who had a pure penance, a pure penitence. It is the tax collector. The tax collector was a part of, of a class of people who were detested by not only the Jews, but by other nations also, both on account of their employment and of the harshness, greed, and deception with which they did their jobs. So they would go and they would collect their taxes. And as we feel towards our tax, <laughs> our tax people, we often say, well, what are you doing working with these people? And you, you, you're, you're just a bunch of thieves. And they, they really were thieves, uh, the tax collectors in their day. As Caesar would say, well, I want you to co collect whatever it was, two denarii. They would go and collect three denarii and pocket one for themselves and give the two. So they honestly, uh, honestly were thieves. <laughs> um, they, were, they were known for this sort of thing. Unlike the good Pharisee, this wretched individual comes to the temple out of devotion to God and immediately feels his own unworthiness to be in the presence of God. Now we are told of him that he stands some distance away and was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. So picture this, the temple, there's the Pharisee. Can, you, can everyone see me? You know, he's up there in front and he's, he's lifting and here's this man standing way off in the back, unwilling even to lift his, his head. I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed. I, I have nothing in, in which to boast or recommend myself to the Lord. Perhaps he really was a thief. Perhaps he, he was completely uh, aware of his own, his own sinfulness here. He comes again to the temple, temple out of devotion to the Lord feels his unworthiness and, and even is unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. Whereas the Pharisee extols his virtues to God and belittles others, this tax collector is beating his breast, a sign of great remorse, and speaks of no one else's sin but his own. The sinner does not blame other people for their sins. He does not push it off on someone else. You know of, of Jeffrey Dahmer and and. I grew up in town with him, and his little brother sat with me. Now I've got your attention. <laughs> he, it was interesting. I saw an interview with him. I saw an interview with him where he was asked why he did this. And I, as I recall, the, um, the interviewer, the reporter interviewing him, was asking questions like, uh, you know, was this your, because of your upbringing? And, and, and it was kind of like kind of trying to give him an excuse, a reason why he did the things he did. You know what he said? I have nobody to blame but myself. 
this was my sin. And that was the air of credibility in my ear towards this man truly being regenerate, is that he identified his sin as his sin and blamed no one else for it. This is the kind of thing we see with this tax collector as he beats his breast and he says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And I always think the definite article, the sinner, not I'm a sinner. I'm just one of a lot. He says, no, I'm the sinner. I'm, I'm chief. I, I, I'm the man who has done these things. It is not God who needs him or his talents. He's not coming to the Lord like the Pharisee. He is coming to the Lord in a broken manner as a man who is trembling, who demonstrates his need of the Lord. He cries for God to be merciful and for God to bring forgiveness. Now this mercy that he cries for, God be merciful to me, the sinner, is not like the mercy that we we hear the lepers crying out to the Lord. It's not just, hey, please take pity on me. That's not what he's asking here. But he's actually asking, be propitiated in regard to me. This is the Greek. Atone, in other words, when he says, be merciful to me, he's actually saying, atone for my sin. Appease your wrath against my sin. This is what he's crying out for. He, he goes very different than the Pharisee. He goes in saying, I'm a wretch. I, I won't even lift my eyes to look. I am so deeply ashamed of my sin. I deserve your wrath. Would you be merciful to me? Be merciful to me, uh, the sinner. First John 2, verse 2. And he himself, this is what we know of the Lord Jesus, he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. He understands what the man who thinks he is good can't understand. I have nothing, nothing to offer God of worth or of value. I can't atone for my own sin. My best works, my best efforts my taint, are tainted with sin. I fall infinitely short of the Lord's infinite holiness and perfection. What work or deed or discipline can I do that is going to move my God's hand to save me, the sinner? I have nothing, no bribe, I have no alibis. All I can cry is, be, verse, be merciful to me, the sinner. We oftentimes think, well, that's, that's too easy a thing. You have to do something, right? You have to do something for God to, to, to deserve his grace. You see a problem with that statement? If you deserve grace, um, it's no longer grace. It's called a paycheck. Your God is too small. Uh, if you can do something to merit God's favor and you think too, way too highly of yourself and that's the Pharisee. Notice what Jesus says. Um, the pure penitent is pardoned. Listen to what he says again. I tell you, this man went into his house justified rather than the others for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, Augustus Toplady, writing the, the hymn, Rock of Ages, listen to this. 
Not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know, could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That is some of the sweetest, sweetest words when you hear that. And here's, here's this tax collector. Atone for my sin. I have nothing. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus said, It is not the man who boasts in his works who receives grace. Why does he need it? He has already arrived, hasn't he? But the man who felt the weight of his sin, who went away from the temple, he went away from the temple being justified. Justified. He cries for mercy, and God declared him to be righteous. He so humbled himself that his only hope for salvation is that the Lord himself would be gracious. And my friends, that is what the Lord has done for the person who is broken over their sin and flees to Christ and says, Be merciful to me. This man, who humbled himself under God, was exalted while the other went away, yet dead in his pride, dead in his self-sufficiency. Beloved, this is the good news. This is what Jesus Christ came into the world to do to save sinners. You don't clean up your life and then come to Jesus Christ. You come to Jesus Christ broken over your sin and you say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And you watch how the Lord will deliver and heal and declare you to be righteous. The gospel is that free that wonderful I understand why my parents didn't beat the stew out of me they practiced the grace of the Lord towards an unworthy knucklehead they demonstrated a kindness to me that I was entirely undeserving of and this is what we see on a much greater scale in how the Lord Jesus deals with us who come to him what do we do? Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That's what we do. We come just like the tax collector and we leave the temple being justified. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this night and we thank you again for this sweet and wonderful parable and pray that we would be just like that tax collector having nothing to offer and to see, Father, truly that the grace we have received is that which has um, made us right, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us all because of your loving kindness. We can't atone for ourselves, but, O oh Lord, we look to your hand to make peace between us and yourself. O oh Father, I pray that this would uh, wash over us this truth would stay with us and that we would live grateful lives and grateful thankfulness of all that you have done thank you again and i pray these things in jesus name amen <laughs>